0: Wrapping up the day's sporting issues deep into the night, this is Extra Time on SENZ.
1: Just got seven o'clock here on SCNC at extra time, and apologising for Rick rolling you. Uh, you were tuned in for a different type of Ric- Ricardo Ball here with you through till uh, nine o'clock, but you got Rick Astley instead. Ben, uh, who is in charge of the music, because uh, we do do a theme every night with the music out of the ad breaks. Why are we playing Rick Astley? So
2: tonight we're doing songs that were number one on the New Zealand charts in the
1: 1980s. In the ni- why in the 1980s? Well, It was just a year that I chose. Uh, or decade or decade, decades. Decades, so my apologies, yeah. yeah. yeah I was going to say, you weren't, even, you weren't even born in the 80s. No, I'll, I'm a '96 baby. Right, and I'm a '72 baby. So it's like the it's the it's the the gap year. It's the gap decade. Exactly. Right. Okay. There you go. So well, uh, we'll look look forward to that. Looking forward to hearing hopefully better songs that were number one <laughs> <laughs> during the 1980s. I've um, got any suggestions for number one songs of the 80s? Uh, send them through to us. Double eight double three. We'll see what we can do. Double eight double three is that uh, text line coming up on the show tonight? Uh, we are going to be talking. Uh, with Gordon Glenn Watson after 8 o'clock. He is part of the Auckland City camp. They're getting ready for the Club World Cup. Tomorrow, they play Barcelona B uh, in Spain. They've just had a couple of games over there against another Spanish side and against the Korean champions in the warm-up for the Club World Cup, which is held in Morocco starting the 1st of Feb. So Gordon's going to join us after 8 o'clock. Also after 8 o'clock, the man they call the hairy javelin. Yes, that's right, Grant Elliott, because the third and final ODI between New Zealand and India is on tonight out of indoor. He is part of the commentary team for Sky Sports as well. Uh, So we are going to catch up with Grant before the game gets underway. Uh, Be interesting to see what his take is on how this New Zealand team has performed in India, particularly that top five. We'll ask him about that and a bit more as well. Uh, we're also going to talk to Brett Angel, um, who's a former Everton striker and a football coach who lives here now in New Zealand. Uh, Frank Lampard, of course, the Everton boss, was sacked today officially. And uh, where to now for, for Everton as they sit second to bottom in the English Premier League? The last time Everton were relegated, Ben, it's even longer than I've been alive. 1951 was the last time Everton weren't in the top division in England.
2: Well, that's, that's a very long time and probably not a very good time as well to get relegated at the moment, considering there's all this talk about new stadiums. and
1: Well, yeah, they're in the middle of building a new stadium, Everton, at the moment. Yeah, it's not going to be a good look. No, it's not going to be a great look at all, so they need to do whatever they can. Now, where they go next is going to be interesting. We'll get Brett Angel's take on that. Uh, but one of the big things that's been in the news uh, the last day or so has been about Uh, The new tackle laws, um, or looking at the tackle laws, and talking about making the tackles lower, right? So you're having to basically tackle, was it below the ribs, basically, isn't it? It's kind of got to be around the waist. Uh, World rugby are talking about making that a rule, and as it happens, the Six Nations uh, teams were all doing their press today and announcing their squads. Uh, And so we had a few of the big hitters in international rugby have their say on this, including... uh, Owen Farrell and Steve Borthwick, and I mean, I tell you what, there's a bloke that does need uh, to sort of tackling out. It is Owen Farrell.
0: Uh, here's what they had to say about it. I think what it what it does do is it, you you look at you look at what you could do better from from the situations that's put you in in it in the first place. And, and I've obviously had had time to step back and have a look at that and learn and learn from that. And and I think in terms of in terms of where the game's going and and trying to make the game safer and And making sure that it's played, played in the correct way, and, and, and a good example for everybody I think I think the the games and the RFU are, tr- are trying to make sure that it's going going in the right direction, and we as a team as an England team want to make sure that we're at the forefront of that. We want to make sure that we're preparing in a way that we can play as, as, as hard as we possibly can uh, and make sure it's as fair and as safe as we possibly can as well and obviously I, I want to play a big part in that. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think what I, what I just said is that it gives you a little bit of time, a little bit of, um, uh, of a step back. Obviously, with with no game at the weekend to have a look and, and look at it in, in good detail. Um, and obviously, the the main point the main point of what I've just said is 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 us is us as a team making sure that we're 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 at the forefront of it and we're making sure that we're, we're trying to play the game as, as hard and as, and as safe and as fair as we can do.
3: If I can build on that as well, the, just to back up everything Owen said there, there's more that that intervention course run by World Rugby is the initiative. Over 100 players have been through that course now and I think firstly, uh, in, in terms of a, a plan and the way globally we're trying to address to make this game, keep the physical intensity of this game and ensure it's a safe sport for generations to come i think that's it's it's great that people we are trying to do that i think secondly with that the some of the tutorials that are used for that course were uh, led by kevin simfield shawn kevin Sinfield, who's going to be coaching our defense so i think you see now with the england rugby team what we're trying to do is we want to just as owen said we want to fight we want to play physically we also we want to be fair So there
1: you go. That is uh, Steve Borthwick, the New England coach, and um, Owen Farrell talking about uh, proposed new tackle laws. Um, And you know, obviously, they've got to toe the party line because the RFU were driving this. But it does make me wonder, Ben, and and I I think it's you know there needs to be uh, focus not just on the tackler but on the ball runner as well, because a big part of rugby is using your size and your power to get over the advantage line, right? So what happens if you're five metres out from the opposition line, and we've seen this in rugby plenty of times, and forwards pick the ball up, because a guy like, I don't know, Jerry, uh, I was going to say uh, Jerry Collins, but yeah, I mean, Jerry Collins is a fair example, or an Artie Savier, picks the ball up five metres from the line, and they run at the line bent at the waist. You see that a lot, right? Guys running bent at the waist. So how do you tackle that player, because it's got to the defence still has to have the opportunity to stop a player, so you're taking out any option of tackling a player that does that.
2: I've got grave concerns for rugby after hearing this. It's it's really concerning, and just to what your point you're saying there as well. It, to me, it's the exact same when you uh, when someone's falling in a tackle and they get clipped, and if they weren't falling it wouldn't have been a high tackle. So it's not that the player was in a bad position. It's more the fact that, say, you know, so they're running someone they tackle from behind and they start falling. You've got a guy that's in front who's getting ready and the guy falls into his arm and he's the guy that gets red-carded. And I don't think that's fair. But this is, this is just, this is the way that rugby's going and it's a real shame because it's, rugby is a gladiatorial sport. You look at some of the, the real hard-nosed guys that played, the, played rugby I think of a guy like an Ian Kirkpatrick, for example, and I think, wonder what he probably thinks of the these changes, and what Sir Colin Meads would think of these changes if he was still here. You know, these real hard men of the of yesteryear. And so it's just a real shame that it's all changing, and it, when you when the rules change, coaches will always find a way to slightly bend the rules or get those little benefit the doubts and it's going to be this continual problem but as I say I I have concerns for rugby uh, I don't like the direction it's going and <laughs> might as well just play tag to be honest.
1: Yeah well it feels a bit like that. Um, I'm keen to hear from you 0800 150 811 0800 150 811 or 8833 is the text line uh, let us know your thoughts on this and what you're concerned about when it comes to maybe uh, the these tackle rules or are you not concerned? You think it's a good idea. I mean, I get player safety, right? And I know Ben's mentioned some pretty old school All Blacks there. The game has changed a lot since then. Um, And it's changed a lot in the last 20 years, right? Uh, But there has to be a certain amount, I think, uh, of um, accountability from the ball runner as well and what they're doing. And there has to be, I think there are too uh, too many people making the laws, and referees come into this as well, who have never really played the game. So, you know, I've had this discussion online with people before who are, who are referees, uh, rugby referees, or have a more, I, I guess you would say, more, um, more of a take on the laws of the game, uh, maybe more involved as administrators and things. And, you know, they, it ends up coming down to they're like, oh, yeah, but it's up to the tackler. But it's like you say. You know, it's. I mean, what happens if I drop my level, or what happens if somebody goes around my legs and I and I fall into a tackle? That's not the tackler's fault, right? And there has to be a certain amount of common sense used around that.
2: Well, to me, it's kind of a bit like how they've now changed the red card rule to be the whole twenty minutes. I don't, I don't like it personally. Mm.
1: Uh,
2: but it's about kind of, I can kind of see that if a player gets if a team gets disadvantaged by something that practically wasn't the person's fault, like they fell into it. And of course, you know there are concerns with concussions, head issues, and all that. I totally get that. But rugby is in trouble enough as it is at the moment. Yeah, and. Limiting where you can tackle it's essentially I remember a few years ago there was a, a law how they you could only tackle they were going to trial something on they, they specified the nipple mm-hmm. the nipple length, so if you're going off that and the waist, that's a very small target zone for you to hit, yeah, it's very, very small, and you think about shorter players
1: yep well, I mean you <laughs> you think of Brodie yeah, tackling Aaron Smith.
2: Exactly, and you think that that is giving the shorter man a massive advantage. We're going to take that. We're taking all these bigger men out of the game, and that's why I'm saying you might as well just play tag because it's just going to be a bunch of five footers running around the field.
1: Yeah. So now, as much as um, Owen Farrell and uh, Steve Borthwick were were towing the party line, it was a little different when the Irish were asked about this. Uh, Owen's dad, Andy, and Johnny Sexton.
3: Yeah, look, I don't agree with it. Um, there's no point in sitting on the fence, really, is there? Um, I just think that you've you've got tall people that play the game. It should be their decision to how they, they tackle. Of course, we need to get the the headshots out of the game. Um, but I think the, the tackles that we really need to take out of the game are the reckless, out of control, sprinting out of the line, uh, tucking arms, all these type ones. You know, hitting someone there, I don't think is a it should be an option um, and it's not like you can't get concussed chopping someone's knees you know i, I see a hell of a lot of concussions people getting their head on the wrong side and a knee to the temple or a hip even uh, to the side of the head Um so strongly disagree i think i think it's super important that
2: um what has to be what has to come with that is the, is the correct coaching the correct way the correct technique because of the reasons that johnny just said you know um if you are just saying to a kid that you need to tackle lower, then you become even more vulnerable. In my my opinion, you know, if you are just sitting there with your arms in front, you know, trying to wrap and and um, with your head down, etc., you know, you're you you're a sitting duck waiting to happen. So, the coaching and the technique of how how it's applied to. Um, Tackling below the tackling below the waist is absolutely
0: crucial. Otherwise, we're going to have a serious problem.
1: Mm, yeah, I think we'll have a serious problem, and I, I fail to see how this is going to float. It's also uh, going to change the game a lot if they bring this in because if you can only tackle there, you can't stop the offload, right? Um, so the knock-on of that will be interesting, actually, to see how that develops. I think there's a very good chance that it might actually, uh, in a... Uh, the knock-on effect will be a, a one that's not a conscious uh, effect from rugby, uh, from the powers that be. But if you uh, can't wrap the ball, right, so there's more offloading, there's going to be less players in the tackle, which means there's going to be more players on their feet. So that might change the way the breakdown looks a lot too. Well, quite a lot of the time as well when you watch,
2: players don't really commit to the breakdown anymore like they used to. The guy will make the tackle and he'll roll away and sometimes you literally just have the guy who got tackled lying on the ground and everyone's just right up on the line ready to defend again because they know that it's very hard to get those turnovers. I think in the international game you probably see that contest a bit more, but in Super Rugby where they play that quite fast style, the guys just don't really commit as much anymore as they
1: used to. No. And so that, you're exactly right. Because I remember, you know, watching All Blacks games when I was younger, and you'd see, you know, there, a ruck would be potentially, you know, 12, 14 people on the floor. Uh, now, sometimes it's like four, five. If maybe. you're lucky. Yeah, if you're lucky, you know. And, and as you say, you've got players fanning out and guys sort of more to just on the fringes, on their feet. So that could be a potential maybe a positive knock-on effect.
2: Well, you kind of get that one guy as well who's almost protecting the guy that's tackling on the ground to try Mm. to protect the ball. But then that's when you see those neck rolls or you see those what they were saying about the hip drops and and the breakdown. That's where you start seeing those.
1: Yeah, exactly. So this lowering the tackle, while it's deemed to be about protecting players' health, head health, for example, might actually have knock-ons into other parts of the game. Um, and that could actually go against probably what you would think the RFU would like, which is actually speed up the game and maybe make it for slightly smaller guys and not absolute tanks, which would be interesting.
2: I would be quite curious to see you know, what kind of happens with rugby, whether people are kind of just like, nah, I, I don't want to do this, whether they you know, decide or I might go play league or go <laughs> something else. or the th- actually, actually, the other issue is there's so many other sports now. I know it's a bit different for the guys playing now, but... Kids growing up might think, oh no, I don't really want to do this. I you know, go play basketball. I'll go play football. I'll go play whatever.
1: Mm. Well, I was going to say the other thing is that it be. I think a rugby would look a lot more like league if they brought this rule in, and then oh, not probably lot of 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 that.
2: it be very interesting. I, I, know, I know the tackler has to release, but mm. whether there's going to be a bit of wrestling, you know, they're going to be standing up and trying to hold the guy up a lot more, you know. Yep. Like you do see because you see. only
1: have to release once you're on the deck, right? Exactly. You don't have to release well, you, if you're held in the tackle. Well, I
2: I think if you hold them on their feet, that almost constitutes a maul, doesn't it?
1: It can do. I think if there's more than three players involved in the tackle, so guess
2: what? There's going to people come running in with their heads
1: down. Yep. Exactly, exactly. So uh, there's a lot a lot to digest from this and a lot more to come, you would think. So uh, keen to hear from you, 0800-150-811, 0800-150-811 or 8833. Do you like this idea or not? Where are you on it and what do you foresee as the changes uh, to rugby and how that might work? Keen to hear from you, 0800-150-811 at 17 past seven. 7.21 here on SENZ, it is your extra time, and that is uh, Billy Joel and Uptown Girl, and I don't remember the name of the album that it was from, but I'm pretty sure that in the video, Christy Brinkley is in the video for that, and uh, that's where Billy Joel and Christy Brinkley met, I believe, they got married after that, so you go, bit of, bit of trivia for you, Ben, bit of, for our 80s number ones? Oh, I love I love the knowledge bombs, Ricardo. Oh, that's what it's all about, mate. Knowledge bombs. To tell you, dropping bombs today uh, was Ellie Brigginshaw. Uh, Ellie is the captain of the Brisbane Broncos team and the NRLW. She's been talking about the collective bargaining agreement uh, with I think it was Pats and Heels, wasn't it, um, uh, from Sen in Australia and Brisbane uh, this morning, and basically said that um, players, female players, are having to pay their own health insurance. Uh, they're not seeing any of the money that has been raised by sponsorship uh, for the NRLW. Here's what she had to say on Pat and the Heels uh, earlier today. She was originally uh, talking about the NRLW issues and how it might impact as well on uh, the NRL start date.
2: Andrew says he's on board, but I think there's some people in there that are questioning um, what what we deserve and. We want multi-year contracts. We want yearly contracts. And there's some people in there that are saying that we don't don't deserve that. We've we've had a major sponsor come on board and take priority in the women's game, yet their money's not actually going towards the women's game. So I don't understand how a major company wants to sponsor the women's game, yet the money doesn't go towards it. That just doesn't make sense to me.
4: Mm, this is unbelievable. What chance are the men of starting their season.
2: I know strongly that they are all holding their ground and they won't be playing until things are sorted. So,
1: And boy they're boy. fully
2: supported by the RLPA union. So, yeah, it's
5: going to be a hairy couple of weeks.
1: A hairy couple of weeks indeed. There you go, Ali Bringshaw, the captain of the Broncos in the NRLW, talking about that. I mean, because it's also... Impacting this, Ben, on uh, something else, which is the Indigenous round, because there's supposed to be uh, an Indigenous All-Stars versus a Māori All-Stars women's game as well, but for those players in the NRLW to take uh, partake in that, they're putting their contracts in jeopardy, because if they get injured, they're not covered because they they don't have any insurance through the NRL.
2: Yeah, and it's something that the NRL players, I think on social media last week, they all put like this, I can't remember, it was like a turquoise-ish colour post on their social channels, and they were explaining, look, this is not about us making more money. Yes, it will be nice, but this is about the other side of the games where some of the young guys coming through who probably don't earn enough money to live in this current climate in society due to the cost of living crisis this is about trying to look after guys who like an Alex McKinnon for example who had a horrific injury and had to immediately retire this is about looking after guys like that this is about looking after the female players so the whole the whole threat of the whole lockdown is more than just trying to get the the best players more money it's it's to look after everyone in the game.
1: Yeah, exactly, Uh, and and that includes – I mean, this makes no sense to me. If you're the NRL and your initiative is this Indigenous round – why wouldn't you have your players covered for the Indigenous runs so they can play in it? So your product's better. Because at the moment there'll be a lot of women in that uh, who are NRLW players will go. You know what? I'm just not going to play in this. It's a game that means nothing in terms of ov- overall for the season. Yes, I want to represent my Indigenous side and my Māori side, but at the end of the day, it's a one game, and it could cause me to lose my contract.
2: Well, it's really sad as well because there's lots of discussion about the the, the growth of women's sport. And something like this, well, I, I would actually. I'll go back to when COVID started. COVID really halted momentum for the, some growth of women's sport, and then something like this is only just going to hurt the growth of women's rugby league even more. And it comes back to what we're saying about the rugby: they're going to be. Uh, some women's players that might think, "Look, I don't want to. I can't be bothered with this. Do I go try another sport out? Because there are being many, many of the league players. Is you know, even some of the cricket players. You know, they've had tried their hands at different sports and are, can play it to a reasonably high level as well. So there's no reason why they won't. They think, okay, I'll just step back and go do something else.
1: Well, especially, with the, I mean, this times in with the expansion of NRLW as well, right? We've got, got another two teams this year, so I think we're up to eight teams this season, and then it's going to be t- ten teams next season. So while you're expanding the sport, you wanting you wanting to bring players into the sport. I mean, you know, they'd be it'd be remiss of NRL clubs not to be hitting up people like Michaela Blyde and Sarah Herney, for example, and saying, "Come and play our sport." Well, they've got to be able to be out, you know, offer them some security. And you would have thought that, you know, health insurance is is the first thing that you would get signed off if you're the NRL. Yeah, it's just really sad
2: that the game is in this position especially so close to the start of the season I didn't realize it was March 2nd I thought it was you know maybe the second week in March but it's it's really soon and as every day goes by the more fear you have of it not actually starting on time and there being a lockout like we have seen in American sports before I remember the NBA about 10 years ago started on Boxing Day I think it was because of the lockout and we this, this would be unprecedented It would this be part of the world
1: yeah it would be um, I, and I know that uh, already the, some of the men's teams have refused to do any press for nrl.com or any photo shoots anything for the official nrl websites until the CBA is sorted Um, collective bargaining agreement, so we will see. There is certainly more pressure coming on the NRL over in Australia, but they've been talking about this for a year now and they still haven't been able to make an agreement yet. This is just something else that has added to it. Now, Brett Angel is going to come on shortly. We're going to talk about Frank Lampard. Uh, the former England and Chelsea midfielder who was the manager of Chelsea for a little while, has been the manager of Everton for just under a year. He was sacked this morning, New Zealand time. Jamie Carragher, former England teammate, had this to say about Everton and Lampard.
6: A decision had to be made. And I always feel with a manager, if you've got a similar record to the guy before, who you replace. So Rafa Benitez has won a similar sort of run. I think one win in 12 or something like that. You can't complain then when the, when the, the club decide to make a change when you've got a similar sort of record. So we're going to look at, at Everton this season and the, the underlying numbers as well, really. So we look where they are, the points. We, we know the joint bottom of the table with Southampton. The problem is the underlying numbers in terms of expected goals, expected goals against, is pretty much where they are. You know, So yes, they should have scored a few more goals, we get that. But we know they've lacked goals with, with Dominic Calvert-Lewin. Actually, they're actually against. And, and if you actually look at the goals they've conceded, I mean, the fact Jordan Pickford has been playing out of his skin has meant they've actually got a better de- defensive record than, than what those numbers tell you. But what the kill has been, I think for Frank especially, is that Everton have become such an easy touch. And that's not just on Frank, that's on those players. Those players, for me, that group of players is not good enough. We know that, that's obvious. But they shouldn't be bottom of the league. And what's the absolute killer is that Everton, who I always associate from when I was a child and when I played against them as being a tough place to go, uncompromising, aggressive, they're an easy touch. They're the easiest touch in the Premier League. If you're on a bad run, you want to play Everton. And these stats bear out. So they lose to West Ham at the weekend. West Ham are in a horrendous run. One of the last day, two they beat Everton. Wolves won two of the last ten. Everton and West Ham. Bournemouth on a horrific run. The only one game they've won was Everton. And Southampton, exactly the same. So when you're on a bad run, you want to come up against Everton. So there's no doubt about that. Now, I've just said, it was right to change the manager. But... Nobody knows a football club better than their own supporters. Their own supporters haven't got banners in the crowd for Frank Lampard. They've got them for Farhad Mishiri and the board. And I said on this programme about six months ago, 12, six to 12 months ago, Everton are the worst-run club in the country. And it wasn't a flippant remark, I believed it. And I'm not saying that as an ex-Liverpool player. I'm saying it as an ex-Everton fan. And when I made that comment, Everton got in touch with me and I actually admired it, that they were almost on the front foot trying to defend their club. And I thought, well, OK, fair enough. We say things in the media and sometimes people come back at you. But I didn't think I was wrong when I said it then. And I'm not wrong when I said it now. There you go, that is uh, Jamie Carragher the
1: uh, former Liverpool and England uh, player talking about Chelsea talking about Frank Lampard the situ- uh, not Chelsea, Everton, the situation they are in, uh, that was uh, on the Premier League coverage on Sky Sports, thanks to them for the audio, when we come back former Everton player Brett Angel joins us to talk about the club and where they're at and what next it is 25 away from 8 o'clock here on SENZ. This is Extra Time. Continue our theme of number one songs from the 1980s. Yes, back in those days, uh, things would come out around the world and then we'd get them here about 18 months later. That's how it used to work uh, and that was a prime example. That album released in, I think, late 79. That song wasn't a number one hit here till about 81, but there you go. Uh, we'll continue to bring you more number ones from the 80s throughout the night. Joining us now is a bloke who was more of a number nine than a number one uh, during his days. Brett. Angel, how are you, mate? Uh,
5: not too bad, Ricardo,
1: are you? Yeah, good, thanks, mate. Good, good. Uh would uh, be, be nice to be talking about Everton and better circumstances, but uh, uh, things are going from bad to worse. Uh, Frank Lampard was in charge for a few days shy of 12 months after replacing Rafa Benitez, but he's he's gone the same way, and the club currently in, in 19th position.
5: Yeah, obviously, uh, it's a situation that's probably been synonymous with, with Everton for too many current years just recently and uh i think since you know well really you know, it's been very difficult for them they they it keeps looking as though they're turning the corner but realistically for the last sort of 2 3 seasons they've been fighting relegation and uh that's what they're doing again um this season probably from a Worse position than
1: they've ever been. Yeah, it's interesting. I was listening to we just played some Jamie Carragher before we got you on, Brett. Uh, He was talking about it and saying, look, you know, if you go to Goodison Park, he said, um, you know, the the banners aren't Lampard out. They're they're all about the board and the owner. Um, But I guess that the you know the board and the owner are always going to try and cover their backsides by, by blaming someone else first.
5: Yeah, look, at the end of the day, it's been sort of an ongoing thing uh, for, for, well, really many, many seasons. There's been an awful lot of money spent, and obviously not very wisely. Uh, I think a lot of fans are asking, well, who are we buying and why are we buying them and where do they fit in the jigsaw piece or the jigsaw puzzle? It's looked for quite a while now that Everton have never really had a jigsaw puzzle, uh, and the pieces haven't really uh, it together and obviously when you go through different managers different managers have a different outlook and want different types of players and I think that's also synonymous with what you're seeing at Everton at the moment where players in the squad are probably you know two or three managers since and, and are still there so yeah like I sort of said it it's it never looked as though it was you know looking any better you mm-hmm. know Frank came in and it was sort of could we survive? And they've managed to survive, but again, gang's lost players spent a lot of money to replace those players, but things haven't really progressed or developed.
1: Well, I mean it's to use the, the jigsaw analogy, um, that, that's what is very much a jigsaw, and you touched on it. I think they've had seven managers in six years now. Um, or is it the other way around six managers in seven years, I think. Um, but you know, it's it's you've got seven uh, you've got pieces for seven different jigsaws in one box, haven't you? So uh, that makes it hard to, to to kind of get any continuity going and, and, and to have a plan because you've got all these different ideas, players that fit different systems and things in there, um, and, and obviously that chews up wage bills. I was looking at the stats, though. They've got one of the highest wage bills and one of the highest uh, spends in the last five years of any team in the Premier League.
5: Well, that's because of obviously the turnaround of you know managers and players and coming in and coming out and... and And basically, it's sort of, you look at it and you go, well, they've never realistically been a top, you know, a top 16 within that last five seasons. Yet they've gone through seven managers to try and push themselves back into those areas. And like I say, you you look at it and you go, well, from the outside, whatever's been started it's It's not working, and we've had different directors of football or whatever the name is now, as well as different managers. But the end outcome has always been the same. they're a, they're a struggling group that if you look at them on paper, aren't that realistically strong? They're not a top six team on paper with quality uh, in depth. Uh, the, yes, they've got a couple of individuals that I'm sure that other teams in the Premier League would probably be looking at come summer if they happen to, you know, for short and be relegated. But in reality, there's not an abundance of players where I think they're going to go first and foremost to, to Everton to reap the rewards of, of what's been done previously. You know, Calvin Lewin is, is a sort of Struggled a little bit over the last sort of two seasons, more so through injuries and everything else. But he'd probably be, him and Pickford would probably be the main uh, pickings of of, of higher clubs that may then look to bolster their squads.
1: Mm. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see where they go next. We'll talk about that in a minute. I did want to ask you, you know, as I mentioned, you know, the owner of the board uh, have got to be culpable for some of the decisions they've made in terms of who those managers are. Frank Lampard, I didn't, I wasn't convinced it was a good appointment when he yeah. was appointed because I, I looked at him, you know, people say, oh, well, you know, he got Derby to the playoffs, but he actually, you know, had the, the access because of his Chelsea connections to people like Mason Mount and Reece James and had them on loan at Derby and they still only finished sixth in the league, which was the same place they'd finished the year before without him with a better squad. So never really been convinced that he's, you know, a manager at, at that level. What was your take when they gave him the job?
5: I think, obviously, from his playing background, I think that's given him a little bit more influence or people have been influenced a little bit more around that. I think, obviously, he had a situation after leaving Derby that you could say landed a very, very big job or one of the biggest jobs, you know, in the country. Uh, Having gone back to Chelsea and started to develop there, again, Things looked a lot better, but I think that was more so in expectation. They knew there wasn't money. They knew that they had to play kids. He went through that process, played them, and overall, they did they did well until the point as there again there was no real sort of development moving forward and then uh, Abramovich decided to dispense with his services I think Frank at this moment in time is at that position the next one is crucial because if it goes the same way as the previous ones I think his time as a a manager as a top you know a top flight manager is going to be fairly numbered uh, you know because obviously that's two positions now where he's deemed as not to have had too much success at the Premier League level and it just would depend, I'm not so sure that he would like to go and manage now at Championship level or do what Carrick's done, I think where he was then doing that was in his starting point, I think he's moved past that, So it'll be interesting to see whether if he does stay around the Premier League or whether he goes to Europe and tries things um, you know, that way to to, to reinvent himself
1: yeah it's uh, it's interesting I mean he's got a uh, I think if you look at his uh record his managerial record uh, a lot was made of uh, Gary Neville is a failure when he went and, and worked in Spain with Valencia and of course Stephen Gerrard as well with, with Villa but they actually have better uh, win percentages as managers than Frank Lampard does which is a little bit damning considering uh, how much uh, that was talked about previously. Uh, if you're Everton then, where do you think they go? There's been talk about Marcelo Bielsa but I I don't know, it feels like do they ha- does he have time to get the squad up to the level of fitness he requires? There's been talk about Thomas Frank but... Would you leave Brentford a few of him to go to Everton and Sean Dyche probably seems like the, the the obvious candidate to me. What do you think?
5: Yeah, I suppose again, there's not a lot. If that, those three come come out yet, that they are names, they've managed at uh, Premier League level, they're consistent. I think Thomas Frank has obviously done out of you know has done a really tremendous job uh, with what they've done with Brentford. But Everton's a different beast. There's expectation level there that they are going to be a top six team. And that's possibly what's been the undoing of a lot of coaches and people that are involved is that that sort of expectation weighs very heavily. And obviously, over the road has always pushed that expectation because they've always been in competition with their nearest rivals. And obviously, they've had. A lot more success over the previous, you know, years. So that weighs heavily. Uh, what Brentford are doing is a tremendous job, but Brentford are not expected to be where they are. Whereas Everton are probably there's a lot more expectation that they will be in the top half of the of the league. So that comes with its, you know, with its problems as well. Uh, Sean Deutsch did an extremely good job uh, at Burnley. Would that really sort of invigorate the fans I'm not so sure Elsa did a very very good job at Leeds to get them back into the Premier League and then started to I believe struggle a little bit at the Premier League level Uh, you know it started very well because it was all new but I think the what was happening with Leeds was what eventuated I think he struggled to actually motivate them the flying the, the squad wasn't particularly strong and as has been seen a new person's come in and again overall the playing base of that squad is still uh, limiting to uh, you know to, to moving them into maybe a more safety area so I don't really think at the moment there's anything that's really sitting out that they're going to take Immediately, But then that's their situation. You would have thought that obviously this has been a little bit ongoing. It's not a complete surprise that Frank Lampard has been dismissed. So you would have thought that there would have been sort of murmurings around behind the scenes to at least start to, you know, put some feelers out as to who would be interested in taking the job.
1: Well, here's another name I'll throw at you, Brett, because he'd done the job a couple of times as a caretaker, and I think he left because they gave the job to Lampard last time, thinking that he probably deserved a shot. And that's Duncan Ferguson, a man who who bleeds blue.
5: Exactly. Duncan's been there through many, many years and uh, knows the club inside out. Is that a good or a bad thing? He's obviously also assisted at times, with with you know the likes of Angelotti and people like that, and, and and have picked up. I think he's, you know, in many instances, this from from that point of view, with somebody taking a bit not gamble, but they're in a situation at the moment where they want an immediate uh, change. I think in the short term, Duncan could potentially give them that. Whether he can then move it to the next level. Only time will tell. But I certainly think that it would give the club a massive big injection of enthusiasm if but then we could be in that same situation that maybe the likes of Bournemouth of the experience at the moment. Gary O'Neill's come in, initially started very well, well until the job. Or it could be like he, he does become a, you know, a, a caretaker to see rather than, you know, push the button immediately and then suddenly it's not working out. But I do, certainly think Duncan knows the club, knows everything, the ins and outs of it. Hey, would he be capable of being given a shot? There's only one way of finding out. As a caretaker, when he took in control of the, the role as a caretaker over a, a small short period of time, he did have an effect on the results.
1: Mm, all right, Brett, and before we let you go, mate, uh, as a former Evertonian, what's your gut telling you? Are they going to stay up?
5: Uh, I very much hope so, but my feelings at the moment will be that uh, they are where they are for a reason, and at the moment it's going to take a big, you know, a big swing of somebody very experienced to get them out of there, or somebody with the sort of capacity, like and character of Duncan Ferguson, to move them in the short term away from the uh, from the lower uh, reaches. Is-
1: yeah, indeed. All right, Brett. Hey, listen, thanks very much for coming on on a Tuesday night and joining us uh, and giving us some of your uh, expertise, mate. Much appreciated. Go well. No, Always a pleasure. Thanks. Cheers. It well. is, thank you. Brett Angel here with us. It is 11 away from 8 o'clock. Yeah, number ones from the 80s uh, right through tonight here on Extra Time on SCNZ, John Stevens with Jezebel. Um, that one I had to ask, Ben, who it was because I don't think I've ever heard that song in my life, Ben.
2: Well, the reason why it's actually in there, because at the turn of the I was going to say the century, <laughs> the the, wow, okay. Yeah. at the turn of the decade, it was the number one song. John Stevens actually had back-to-back number ones in the Ooh. 1980s, so he had Jezebel, yeah. and then uh, Montego
1: Bay. Montego Bay, I do remember that one. I do remember that one, and didn't he go on and front, was it Noise Works? No Lies? Was that John Stevens? Yeah, I believe it was. I think it was. Yeah, there you go. All right. Uh, Straining the old uh, muscle memory there. Hey, uh, interesting to see. You know, we've been talking about the Bulldogs, how they keep spending money. Yep. Looks like they're not spending money on a new fullback because they've got Hayes Perriman for free off Parramatta, and uh, it looks like he is going to be their their fullback for the season. Jake Avarillo's been basically sidelined and Hayes Perrin looks like he's going to be Cameron Seraldo's man for the dogs in the number one jersey another former warrior how do you reckon he'll go
2: I like it I, Hayes Perrin's another guy I don't think the Warriors should have let go but he's probably going to probably be
1: like a CNK and k and come back in a few years time and hopefully a bit more developed. Yeah, fingers crossed, fingers crossed. After eight o'clock, we head to Spain to catch up with Gordon Glenn Watson from the Auckland City crew as they get ready for the Club World Cup. We'll also catch up with the hairy jab, Grant Elliott, to preview the third ODI. This is SENZ extra time. Ricardo Ball with you through till nine o'clock tonight, and then we head to the Australian Open and uh, bring you live coverage of the tennis uh, at the quarterfinal stage. Uh, we are of course uh, playing number one hits from the eighties as uh, as we go through the evening. Out of the break, Gordon Glenn Watson uh, joins us, uh, a man who I imagine would have cut a fine rug in the eighties. Uh, Gordon, what was what would have been your your go to uh, your go to track on the dance floor? Uh, Ah, go-to track in the 1980s. Goodness
4: me, you put me on the spot. Probably something from Footloose, I guess.
1: (laughs) Ah, great call. Great call. Kevin Bacon. Uh, Six degrees of separation. Never too far away from him. Oh, look at that. You've even got it now, Gordy. There you go. There you go, mate. There you go. How's Spain treating you?
4: Oh, it's been intense. Uh, The team's trained very, very hard at a wonderful facility, the Football Salou Sports Complex, just outside of Barcelona. they played two friendly games as part of preparations for Morocco and uh, both games were lost by a goal to nil but the big picture focus is process and progression ahead of that game with ala Lee on February the 1st.
1: Yeah, I mean, and that is the big countdown, right? I mean, I, I know it's it's great you've uh, you had a game against uh, Royce FC, um, a Spanish team, and you've you've, you've played Gen uh, Book, the uh, the Korean champions. You got Barcelona B tomorrow, which I mean, as we know that that uh, team is an absolute farm for for talent. But uh, this is all all pointing towards that February first game, right in Morocco.
4: Yeah, that's correct. Uh, the game with uh, Royce was pretty much played with the players straight off the plane. So there was a lot of fatigue, there was a lot of uh, jet-lagged people involved with that game. And they look, Royce were a very, very good team. I think if they played in the New Zealand system, they would be uh, challenging for all the honours. Um, so it was an eye-opener, as Albert Riera described it. And, uh, you know, all the players got to run. Um, that was the point of the exercise. The Junbuk game was very interesting. Uh, junbuk fielded a very strong side. They had Songman Q, Q, moon syung min uh, Chogyu-sung, these players had all played at the uh, World Cup in Russia and Qatar. And uh, I, I spoke to a Korean football uh, media person, uh, showed them the lineup, and he said, yeah, that's a very strong side. So Albert Riera went with a team that I think started is probably going to start to resemble the one that may take the pitch on February the 1st. And it was just a last-minute goal. Um, a fair result would have been 1-1. Uh, Ryan Devries had an opportunity that was tipped over the crossbar. So the confidence and the the positivity in the camp after that game was pretty high. Um, and you know the feet are on the ground, but Jonbok, yeah, they got a game from us. And given you know Auckland City is now six, nearly seven weeks um, in in off season, uh, this, the two efforts have been pleasing. But Barcelona B tomorrow is going to be very tough. Um, we took the team into Barcelona, to the Camp Nou, to watch uh, Barcelona play Getafe in La Liga. And our host said to us that it's reasonable to expect that maybe three or four, four or five first-team fringe players could appear. So, again, um, it's going to be a tough game, but that's exactly what Albert Riera wants. He's used this phrase, putting the players outside of their comfort zone to get growth from them. And so far, so good. But this is another big step. Uh, Barcelona B will be a, a very tough, tough exercise.
1: And that's the thing. I mean, in Spain, it's it's different to you know uh, what a lot of people would be used to from the UK. In that, you know, the the Liverpool reserve team, you know, playing a reserve league. We're o- over in Spain. Barcelona B, I think, are in the third tier. They so they play. You know, those young guys are all playing uh, effectively the Spanish third division
4: yeah essentially and when you say spanish third division or even fourth fifth tier you're talking about professional clubs Mm. and you're talking about a a massive football country with hundreds of millions of people in it so we have to be realistic when you take an auckland city team and, and these players have jobs um these players have had to get time off work it's incredible the effort that has been put in by them the sacrifices they've made um, and I suppose, ironically, uh, Rick, if you think about it, back in the uh, you're talking about the '80s and '90s, the New Zealand football framework used to have reserve teams in in the Central, Northern, and Southern leagues, so that player movement between those teams um, was was quite fluid. And and that's what happens here. There's an argument for that in wider European football for for reserve teams or or age group teams to be included in in the pyramid system. So yeah, it's. It's an exciting experience. The game's been played at Estade um, Johan Cruyff, which is, a, we uh, went past it in the bus on the way to the Camp Nou and it's it would grace any part of New Zealand with its presence. It's a, it's a facility that has multiple pitches. It's got a, a couple of decent grandstands in there and it's just bedecked in Barcelona colours. So you have no you're under no illusion uh, as to you know, who you're playing and what that will mean. So another exciting experience to embrace.
1: Yeah, it's going to be absolutely massive. I, I did see that uh, Jordan Vale uh, said that some of the kids he te- teaches, some of the kids he teaches were giving him grief about how he's going to get skinned by this player and that player.
4: <laughs> yeah, and that's the reality. I mean, this is the reality. If you look through our team, we've got real estate agents, we've got a painter decorator, We've got sales reps, you know, and and Jordan being a teacher. And, you know, last year they played nearly 48 games. And for two months solid, we played three games a week for for two months. So in order to maintain a standard, players have to make sacrifices. And when you're coming up against some of the world's best or some of the best from the continent of Africa, as we will be, you, you look at the challenge in front of you and you think, goodness me, how, how are we going to close those gaps? And, you know, that's the whole reason that we're here in Spain, trying to, to get that preparation so that we give a good representation of football in New Zealand, a good representation of uh, football in Oceania, uh, because you don't want to be embarrassed. That's, you know, that's always possible
1: at this level of the game. Yeah, yeah, it is 100%. And, I mean, that the other thing is that, uh, you know, the, not only the workload, but it sets you up. Well, I know it's it's a tough ask on the players, but they, this is where they get their reward. They get these experiences, right? They get to play in these these great stadiums. Uh, but, I mean, you're effectively playing a professional season. I mean, that's, you know, 40-odd games is what you'd play if you are a pro in Europe.
4: Well, it's, it's not just in the men's space as well. I, you know, I commentated a few of the National Women's League games um over the tail end of the year and the women's teams are playing between 28 35 games you know including uh regional league and then the the final competition itself which was two rounds and it has an effect not just on the players and the coaching staff but clubs have to be operating Mm -hmm. all year round and it it places pressure on your work life your home life and and again sacrifices have to be made but you know (laughs) to talk about women's football briefly um Taylor O'Brien playing for the football ferns after a great season with Eastern Suburbs is uh, the reward she gets for playing in that system. But I imagine sacrifices would be huge. Um, The standards that suburbs set in the women's space are extremely high. So, again, uh, after one year of of that type of football in New Zealand, um, there's a lot of tired people, but we have to go again in 2023, both men and women. Um, and and certainly Auckland City, Wellington Olympic, uh, Auckland United, it's tough.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is tough, man. It is tough. But uh, that's where you want to be, right? That's what you want to be doing. You want to be excelling at the top end. And, you know, that's the other thing. I mean, uh, I know we've been talking about Auckland City, but to slightly um, uh, deviate there, Millie Clegg. uh, I don't know if you've been able to see it, but uh, the Phoenix women beat Canberra 5-0 on the weekend, their first one of the season. And Millie Clegg, who signed on an amateur deal so that she doesn't jeopardise her future of a college scholarship in the US, uh, was absolutely sensational.
4: Yeah, and, and this is this is the this is the reward that the players are striving to obtain by you know putting in personal sacrifice, and and our players are no different. Um, like I said, a lot of them are full time employed, part time students, part time working. Some of them are here on, um, you know, annual leave without pay. Uh, some of the staff are here doing that. And, and why are we doing it? Because we're aspirational. We want to push ourselves. And I think for, from a player's point of view, you're only young once. You know, if you're 25, 26, 27, 28 or late teens, early 20s, you're still very young as a person, as a human being. And you get one shot at, you know, um, being an athlete. You can't do it, or very rarely can you do it in your 30s. It takes a special, unique circumstance for that to happen. So people are criticise players uh, for for making those sacrifices or or failing to understand the sacrifices involved and, and critiquing them, they don't really understand what drives and motivates young people to strive to be the best version of themselves in their chosen sport. And I think that's one of the... Frustrating things that I experienced, you know, listening and hearing some of the things that were said and written about um, Auckland City and stuff, for example. So, you know, we just stay focused on on what we're doing. We're trying to enable uh, the players to have a platform that they can perform in. And so far,
1: so good. So far, so good indeed. Well, let's talk a little bit more about what uh, what awaits. Uh, how much do you know about uh, your, your Egyptian opponents? How much uh, tape of the boys watched? I know al will probably have been pouring over it for weeks on end.
4: al watched everything. Uh, every Al-Ali game from the season, he's watched it. Uh, the players had an opportunity to watch Al-Ali play Zamalek, which is a, a big Egyptian derby, mm. uh, just three days ago. Um, Al-Ali won that game 3-0. They're coached by a uh, Swiss um, Swiss German coach, uh, Marcel Kohler, who had success with Bale. Uh, he won a Bundesliga 2 title uh, earlier in his career, and he has uh, experience of coaching the Austrian national team. So they're very strong with the ball, very aggressive. They start games at a, a, a phenomenal pace. First 10 minutes, you have to hang on. Um, without the ball, very defined defensive structure. In fact, they're probably more disciplined without the ball than they are with the the ball. They play a lot of high-risk football, and they do turn over possession a lot. So there's things in there that perhaps, you know, Auckland City can look to try and exploit. Um, In the Zamalek game, one of the things that was uh, fairly noticeable was that they do get frustrated if things aren't going their way. They haven't lost a game this season domestically. They've won the Egyptian Super Cup uh, very early on, and they're in the group stage of the African Champions League. Um, In the Zamalek game, after an hour, it was nil-nil, and you could start to see them getting at each other. Now, our experience at past FIFA Club World Cups playing African teams, this can be uh, something to exploit, if the match situation is sort of on a, on a knife edge or it could go one way, it could go the other, then there are opportunities. Uh, I actually spoke to Aniot Zubi Karai uh, after we played John Book, and he said to me, We've got a chance. He said, For sure, we've got a chance. Maybe one chance, first half or second. But he said, There will be opportunities as long as we can stay solid, make it difficult to play through our lines, and, and then we see where it takes us.
1: Yeah, and I mean, the good thing is that the, with the way the Auckland Auckland City is set up on and off the field, you've got a lot of experience there. I mean, you've got Ivan Visselich, of course. who's who played at World Cups and played uh, professionally in Holland for a long time. Uh, Zubi Karai, you mentioned, played professionally in Spain, played in La Liga. Albert played there as well. And even some of the, you know, you look at, go through the team, you know, uh, Mike den has played professionally in uh, in Holland. And, and Nico Boxels had a professional career. Cam and we know as well. So there's a lot of that experience there that you can take uh, into this game.
4: Yeah, well, those are the things that you look to. The whole group has got experience in the sport, uh, whether it be on the pitch or off the pitch. And so there's a, a tacit understanding of the challenge in front of us. And everybody works very, very hard to enable the players to be able to do the best that they can. And look, we have limitations. Like we're, here at Football Salou, we're sharing the facilities with Grasshopper Zurich, um, Junbuk as well. Uh, there was a team that came in from the United States, uh, Utah Celtic, and, um, so and there are many many other teams here as well and the resources that they have are noticeably better than what we bring to the table and um so you just have to knuckle down and say well this is what we have it's on a shoestring budget and you know you can't complain about it everybody's relentlessly positive you have to be and so, you know, this is this is the the reality. Like I said, there's there's players in our um, in our group who have jobs. I mean, Jordan Vale is a great example of a guy who starts his day at seven thirty in the morning, and then if he, he has to train three times a week, he's not getting home till eight eight thirty um, in the evening. So, the players are enjoying the fact that they don't have to worry about work. But you know, this personal financial issues and life issues as well that, that crop up when you're away from home. Um, it's a real underdog story and one that we've been in many, many times in the past. So hopefully this experience bodes well.
1: If we get past LLE, um, Auckland City, Seattle Sound is up next, the uh, MLS champions and uh, mm-hmm. CONCACAF uh, champions as well. Uh, that That is, that is going to be a great tie if we can get that far.
4: Well, it's one thing,
1: one, one step at a time. I know that's a that, that's a
4: cliche. And I think we've put all of our effort into focusing on that, that one game and then seeing what happens. But yeah, I mean, I, I had a look at the Seattle Sounders squad and it's just littered with players from all over the world, mainly the American continent from the northern tip to the southern tip. Um, they've had a, a fantastic season. They, they get big crowds. They've got finance. It's... Look, if we'd maybe drawn a, a major League soccer side ten years ago or fifteen years ago, um, it might have been more homegrown, yeah, and therefore you see styles that might be a bit similar and fit. we'll We'll just have to wait and see what happens. Um, you know, because I guess your next question beyond that is Real Madrid. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that is just fantasy land, um, quite surreal. Uh, in 2014, we were one kick of the ball away from playing them in the final. Can you imagine that? Like, saying that out loud even sounds ridiculous today. But that was what uh, happened in Morocco eight years ago.
1: Yeah, I remember um, it well. I think, didn't Ivan Vislic win uh, the bronze boot for the best, the third best player at the tournament, for that tournament? Yeah, yeah.
4: I mean, there's that famous photo now. It's, it's uh, perhaps iconic within our football community of Ivan standing on the podium with Cristiano Ronaldo and Sergio Ramos. I mean, it's... You know, Ivan at that time was, I think, 39 years old, and he had played almost every single minute um, of of that competition. And, you know, uh, these are the dreams that drive our players forward today because our team is vastly different from the one that played in Morocco eight years ago. I mean, I think if you look back to the starting 11 or the the usual starting 11, we were either seven Kiwis plus uh, four foreign players or six plus five. That now has changed because of the regulations uh, in the New Zealand domestic system. Now that that mean you have to have under twenty players and mainly homegrown. So it will be a, a very New Zealand flavour to everything that we do. Um, with you know a handful of the guys who who were here in twenty fourteen, uh, Ryan DeVries, Emiliano Tade. But I mean, these guys are Kiwis through and through now because they've been in our country for over ten years. I think Emmy's been in New Zealand football since two thousand seven um so yeah i mean it's <laughs> one one step at a time i think
1: yeah once yeah indeed indeed I, I do remember actually uh there was a photo as well of Ica casillas the uh real madrid and spain goalkeeper at the time asking jacob spoonley to swap shirts if I, if I remember that correctly how that worked <laughs> that's, what, that's what spoons told me anyway
4: yeah that, that's the spoonley narrative eh? yeah um <laughs> Well, look, we all we all indulged in, in that part of it because it was so fantastical. I mean, I, I remember uh, after the game with Cruz Azul and we were in the post-match area, it was a double header, and, and Real Madrid had just arrived to play San Lorenzo. And Luka Modric, who had played with Mario Billin, uh, Croatia under-20s, these two are just chatting away to each other as if it's like, hi, how are you? Hey, mate, you know, all this sort of very casual catching up with each other. And Luca Modric said to Mario, what are you doing after the game? And he said, well, we have to go home. And Luca Modric dropped this absolute butte, And he said, well, why don't you get your private jet to divert to Madrid and we can all catch up together? And <laughs> Mario just burst out laughing. He said, no, it doesn't work that way. It's a commercial flight. <laughs> but, uh, you know, like I had a selfie with um, Modric. I don't normally do that in those spaces, but it was just the, it was just the right moment. And all the players did that. I remember there's... There's a photo of Sam Burfoot, who's now playing his football with Birkenhead, having a a selfie with Ronaldo. And they were very accommodating. It was Ronaldo said to one of us, I think it might have been James Pritchett. I could be wrong. But he said to to James, how did you guys manage to do that? We watch your games and incredible achievement. I mean, what what an endorsement. Mm. Um, And, yeah, I mean, James at that time was running his own um sports coaching company like he's self-employed <laughs> and cristiano is <Ronaldo's laughs> cristiano Ronaldo, but yeah that, that, this is the surreal nature of of um the football world that we we live and operate in and it, it's changing rapidly um there's more new zealanders playing professional football and you know a lot of our players have had a taste of it um for a couple of years some of them and then it hasn't worked out for whatever reason they come home they want to play in an environment that tries to replicate that level of the game as best we can and uh, you know it's not <laughs> sometimes there's not a lot of reward for for that sacrifice so yeah I mean we're in that dreamscape again and we're trying to craft our own remake if you like of what happened in 2014 but the chances of that are slim I mean that's that's the truth
1: mm, yeah well uh, mate you, you'll have a uh, backing from back here of course it's going to be live on Sky I take it
4: I believe so. I would certainly hope so. Um, it's a big football year for New Zealand with the women's, uh, FIFA Women's World Cup. There's the FIFA Women's World Cup playoff. There's three football ferns friendlies. Um, and, you know, if, if Sky were picking up the FIFA Club World Cup game um, with Auckland City and Alali, of course, I mean, that you would hope that that just makes logical sense to keep that momentum momentum going. Um, Cam Howison actually has an interview with uh, FIFA TV later today uh, solely on the FIFA Women's um, World Cup and what he thinks of that and he's certainly going to be putting in um, a, a good word for everything that's to, to happen later in the year in Australia and New Zealand on that front
1: Yeah, well, looking forward to it mate, hey listen thanks for getting up bright and early, I know everybody else is getting their beauty sleep in mate but you, you pulled a short <laughs> straw to get up and talk to us, I really appreciate it mate, uh, go well and I uh, I will be, uh, for one, will be watching and cheering you on from back here Oh
4: good man, look Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure, and we'll do it again soon.
1: Sounds good, and uh, yeah, maybe just work on those footloose dance moves again, and we can uh, we 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 can, we can see it live when you get back to New Zealand.
4: Well, I think Matt Payne, the physio, doesn't need that on his uh, work list <laughs> to pick up the injuries. But, yeah, sure. I mean, you
1: know, I'll, I'll take that in the spirit you intended. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. Gordon Glenn Watson there right. from Auckland City uh, in Spain, getting ready to take on Barcelona B tomorrow and then head off to the Club World Cup in Morocco, that game against Al-Ali, February the 1st. It is 8.22 here on SENZ Extra Time. You're on SCNZ. It is extra time and not too far away from the Black Caps taking on India in the final ODI of the series. And joining us uh, as part of the comms team over there is the hairy jab himself, uh, Grant Elliott. How are you, mate?
7: Yeah, I'm all good, guys. I'm all good. Last one day, it's uh, been a tough slog for me as a Kiwi commentator and for the team. So it's quite a interesting game because whoever wins this goes to number one in the ODI rankings.
1: Well, I mean for that to happen, our top five need to stand up, don't they? I was having a look and I think over the two innings uh, the top five have totaled in 10 digs 112 runs. I mean we need better than that.
7: Yeah, the uh, the second game looks like postal code. Um, you know, the, the first game obviously Finn Allen got a couple, got in, got out Tom Latham as well, but Outside of that, you know, the highest score, of the top five, is, is forty. Um, I feel like they've bowled really well, India. Like they've bowled well, and they've had a little bit of assistance. They bowled straighter. They bowled, you know, probably a little bit shorter as well. But I don't think that we've been very proactive. I think the, the worrying thing for me is, is that out of all of those those players, Finn Allen's the only one who's not a Test player. Um, and you would think that Test players would be able to cope with any conditions. So we're actually best placed or better placed than a lot of teams in that we've got our, our test lineup: Conway, Nichols, Mitchell, Latham. We're only missing Kane, really. Um, so, yeah, it, it hasn't been a polished performance, you could say, with uh, the New Zealand team. Um, they're going to have to do a lot better with the ball, but also a lot better with the bat. So, I think we've been beaten pretty convincingly in the last two games.
1: Yeah, we have. Uh, and the Indians looking good ahead of the ODI World Cup later in the year, of course, uh, on home territory as well, mate. Uh, a few question marks. One of those has got to be around Henry Nichols. Uh, I don't think I've had a look. Pretty sure over this entire tour of Pakistan and India, he hasn't once scored better than his average.
7: Yeah, well, he hasn't played one day cricket since 2020 against Ireland. So I don't know if you remember, but they pushed him out and that they opened with him. And um, he was opening in the World Cup 2019, got a bloody good 50. And then, um, yeah, he just kind of, like, fell out of flavour. I think he only got injured and kind of they went down a different road, um, obviously looking a little bit more aggressively with someone like finallan. But I'd say that Henry Nichols, like, he is pretty much a fill-in for Kane. So he'd be one of those replacement players that could play anyway. I think he'll make the squad, the Cricket World Cup. But you slot Kane in there at three. Um, in place of Henry, but it's good to see him back and good to see him playing. So obviously, he might feel a little bit of pressure playing at the moment and trying to get a score, um, against what's been a, a, a very, like, polished Indian bowling attack. They haven't given anything away. So, um, the, the positives for me, though, with this New Zealand team is just the balance of our team. Um, one concern, it's, um, Satner and Bracewell They'll play. But what we normally have is we have an all-rounder at both seam. Now, that means that we can't make space for Sodi because you need your three seamers. So it's an interesting one, uh, how we balance that and whether SOTY will play in the T20s. But I'd love to see East SOTY in that team, but we just, we just haven't been able to squeeze them in.
1: Shouldn't Daryl Mitchell be that uh, third seamer? He's an, he's an all-rounder. He's, I mean, he's bowled at test level.
7: Yeah, he could be. Um, I don't think Daryl's got a lot of experience with that role. And, I mean, he did a great job the other day. Um, I think he got two wickets and both, you know, straight lines, keep her up. So he could be that person that uh, provides it. But, you know, when you've got that, that third seamer, you do need, I guess, a little bit more pace. and There's a chance that might come on in the, in the power play. But we do have Miss Satner. The so Satna could provide that role. So we're in good space that we've got two spinners through the middle, which is great. We've never had that, you know, left arm ortho and off spinner and baseball and Satna. Um, but just that balance of the team, whether we think that Sodi's gonna be the one, um, or whether we just gotta get our, our seamers right and get the combination there, um you know, uh I guess in partnership. So it's all about looking at partnerships and which partnership works the best. And it's only really the question mark of the seamers. Otherwise um and maybe Finn an at the top um, whether he'll, you know, keep going leading up to the World Cup, and I'd say he will be.
1: Well, it's interesting you mentioned Phil Allen, uh, Fin Allen, because a lot of the talk before the series was the dropping of Martin Guptill. Um I would still, I would say, what the jury's still out on whether this has been successful or not.
7: Yeah, I mean, you've got to give someone um, a good run, and that's what New Zealand has done well uh, recently. And you know, what I say in the last sort of five years is that when you're in. You don't feel like every innings is going to be your last. You get an extended run, so you know. Do we we stick with and I think we do. Um, you could you could mix it up a bit. I guess that's what Henry Nichols does. He gives you a bit of cover at the top, but I, I quite like the aggression that finallan uses. And this will be this will be a big uh, big innings for him in the context of his tour and his career. He's done very well at T Twenty cricket, but can he actually nail the role in One Day cricket?
1: What about Glenn Phillips? Is there a role for him higher up? I mean, it it feels. I mean, he's a guy that's open for Auckland. Um, He's he's done all sorts of. He's he's batted, I think, every position from one to about seven. Um, Because I look at it and I think Daryl Mitchell at four feels a bit too high.
7: Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I I think that's a good position for Daryl Mitchell. I mean, he's been the one player in this New Zealand team that has, you know, been amazing in all three formats. Uh, you think back to um, the last World Cup T20, he opened, and he had some match-winning performances. So, you know, he's been thrown around the order. Glenn Phillips has been thrown around the order, and Nichols has, Tom Latham. Uh, everyone's pretty much been thrown around at sort of top five. So um, I, I think that Glenn Phillips, he's going to settle into the finishing role. I think that you need someone who's a proficient finisher, and... Yeah, unfortunately for him, because you can never score real big runs when you're batting there. But you need someone who can come in and just actually dominate for ball one and uh, get the momentum or we'll swing the momentum back in your favour um, if, if the if the momentum's in the favour of the, the opposition.
1: Looking at the age profile of our team, uh, I think there's only Henry Shipley, the only player in it who's under 30. Um, at the moment. Um, I mean, was this an opportunity to play, to give a couple of people an an opportunity? I mean, I look back here and I know he's just turned 30, but someone like Will Young is absolutely scoring runs for fun over here. Um, What do you think? I mean, is this the best team available?
7: Well, there's been an A-side tour in India, so those guys have had opportunity and Mark Chapman's here at the moment, so he's your cover um, for all those players, but no, I think, I think that you know, 30 is the uh, the old 20. I mean, guys go on. Look at J- James Anderson. Uh, he's still going. And um, the guys are fit and healthy, and they don't abuse their bodies as much as, I guess, we did it back in the day. So they, they're, they're, a lot of them will go until they, they're 40 years old, um, and they're in great necks. So um, I, I'm a big fan of experience. I like playing um, older players because I think that they've got battle scars. And I think battle scars actually count when you um, when you're in a tough situation. You've got experience to draw on, and you've got the ability to get out of a sticky situation. So, I'm a, I'm a massive fan of experience and, and age when it comes to especially World Cup um, tournaments.
1: Yeah, all right. Uh, well, I did mention Henry Shipley. He has had a, a bit of a baptism of fire, mate. What have what have you made of him? And do you think he's got what it takes at this level?
7: It's, uh, I mean. You know, you can never discount how far players can go. I remember looking at Kyle Jameson when I played against him and going, oh, yeah, he's big, but he's quite slow. Um, And, uh, yeah, that that was proven wrong. I mean, you know, he's had an amazing career. So players can develop. Um, I think Henry Shipley's got the goods. Um, He just needs time in the middle at international uh, cricket. And one of the things you don't want is people learning their game at international cricket. So... If it's a little bit early for him, I don't know. I'm not sure if they'll play him again today. It'll be very interesting to see if they do. They've got Duffy and Bracewell waiting in the wings. Um, but, you know, this is a tough Indian team. And when you come to India, you come to Australia, you're up against it. So the more experience we give players who are talented like Henry Shipley um, a go, the better place we're going to be in this New Zealand cricket. And it's great to see the A tours here and you know, they're just pushing players um, to these tours for different conditions. It's only going to be better for um, New Zealand cricket.
1: Now, the last time there was an ODI at Indoor, uh, the Aussies scored 293. The top three scored 229. And Aaron Finch got a century. Um, if Aaron Finch can score a century here, anyone can, surely, given the form he, he's currently in. <laughs>
7: That's a good point. Um, I spoke to Danny Morrison this morning, well, DK. And he said that this ground's really small. Um, it's a tiny ground. So I'm looking forward to seeing how big it is. Uh, 290 um, is not an excessive score. Um, but the biggest thing here is whether it's going to take turn. And in the last game, it wasn't the spinners that got us, it was probably more the seamers. Mm. You know, Muhammad Shami and Siraj Afrans and Tadio Chaka. Um, you know, they, they, uh, they've been amazingly, like just a lot better line and length um, in their conditions. And We've never won a series in in India. So, you know, you come here, it's like when opposition comes to New Zealand, they know they're going to be up against it because they're going to face conditions that they're not used to. And that's the beauty of cricket being played around the world. Those players that can adapt and, you know, play under the different conditions. And I remember back to my, my career, I didn't spend a lot of time in India. I wish I had. But, you know, you you get over here and suddenly you have to face spin and you have to be bloody good at facing spin. Otherwise, you know, back in the day, you probably lost your place because you got back home and they're like, oh, he can't play spin, so, um, yeah, we'll drop him. Um, But it's pretty harsh conditions here um, and you have to learn quickly. But we've got the sort of players, Henry Nichols plays spin well, Devin Conway plays spin well, Kane plays spin well, and Tommy Latham plays spin well. So normally we didn't have that many players that could actually be like really proficient against spin, um, and that's going to be something that you know will really count in the cricket World Cup coming up in, in India.
1: Do you think there's an argument to open an ODIs with Tom Latham and and maybe bat Conway at four? Uh,
7: no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that. I think I think Conway's our man. I think he stays where he is. He's done well, and yeah, um, I think they're very similar players. So Conroy's obviously finds himself at the, at the top of the order, but you know Tom's done really well in the middle order. His numbers are exceptional, so I think we just keep him there. I think when a player is doing well in a position, you can't be hoodwinked into going, oh well, we'll push him up the order. Um, so I think I think once a player, and that's why Henry Nichols was always a surprising one for me. He was doing well at five, and they pushed him up to open. And that's such a difficult skill to do, and you know he was happy to do it. I was chatting to him about it the other day, but. Different skills, new ball, power play. Uh, and, you know, you come in in the middle, you come in in the middle order, you're pushing the ball around for ones and twos, hitting the odd boundary, running quickly, good energy. It's such a different stage of the game. So I think that we've sort of settled into our, our top order. So you go Finn Allen, Devin Conway, Kane Williamson, Daryl Mitchell, Tom Latham, and then you've got probably Phillips sat in the well. Um that That's what it looks like to me.
1: All right, mate. Uh, Now, how long are you there for? Because we've got a a T20 series after this, and then the IPL's not too long after that. Are you you just staying all the way through?
7: No, 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 no. no. I um, I hop on a plane tomorrow after the game, and I'll be back in uh, the beautiful New Zealand. Uh, So it it took me 40 hours door-to-door to to get you um, uh, on my way here. So hopefully it's not too long.
1: Yeah, fingers crossed, mate. Fingers crossed. All right, we'll go well. Have a great call tonight, mate. Look forward to hearing it, and uh, we'll catch up with you when you're back, eh?
7: Thanks, Ricardo. Thanks a lot, mate. Have a good show.
1: Classic song, great song. David Bowie, "Let's Dance," 1983. Um, off. I'm trying to remember the name of the album now. It was a, it was a great record. Actually, on this album, you can't really tell from the song from where we are, but the two guitarists. Um, Dirty Creatures and Super Creeps I think was something like that the name of the album but uh, yeah the two guitarists on the album were really different they had, had Noel Rogers from Chic who was kind of more of a disco kind of guy a disco R&B kind of guy playing and he also had Stevie Ray Vaughan playing guitar on this who was obviously a blues rock guy so uh yeah, it was an interesting album el- great album one of, the, one of Bowie's strongest. But there you go. Uh, that is our number one for the 80s. We're doing number one tracks from the 80s right throughout the show here tonight. On Extra Time on SENZ, we're a quarter away from 9 o'clock. I can tell you, after talking to Grant Elliott on the cricket there, uh, that the New Zealand team has been named, and they have made just the one change. At this stage, anyway. Uh, We don't know what the batting order looks like, but uh, it's all the same players, if you like. Uh, The only difference is that Henry Shipley is out of the team and Jacob Duffy gets his opportunity. Uh, So an out-and-out pace bowler coming in for uh, uh, somebody who's an all-rounder, I guess you would say. Uh, Well, that's what he was picked as. So uh, this is the New Zealand team. Finn Allen, Devon Conway, Henry Nichols. Uh, at three, Daryl Mitchell at four, Tom Latham uh, to captain and wicket keep. Glenn Phillips, Michael Bracewell, Mitchell Santner, Jacob Duffy, Blair Ticknett, Lockie Ferguson. And uh, New Zealand have won the toss and are going to bowl first. That is the news out of uh, indoor where this match is played. The Indians have made two changes. They're two best bowlers from last time. Uh, uh, basically are uh, out of the team. Uh, so they've dropped Mohamed Shami and Siraj as well, and Amran, uh, Malik and Chahal have come in to the side. So they've just changed their bowlers out, uh, their fast bowlers out for this one, but that game gets underway in about 15 minutes' time. Uh, we will, in 15 minutes' time, be heading to the Australian Open here on SENZ for coverage of the uh, tennis, but the cricket will course, uh, be on at the same time as well. New Zealand are $3.20 outsiders. India are thirty favourites in this one. What do you think? Can New Zealand get it done? Do you reckon the Black Caps will pull one out of the bag here and get a win? They can't win the series, but if they lose the series 2-1, they still go to number one in the world rankings. If they lose it 3-0, India get number one uh, ahead of the World Cup because I think there's only, there might be one more, Uh, ODI series for the Indians before the World Cup I know England play South Africa as well if England can sweep South Africa they can go to number one and then that'll be the rankings for the World Cup in October
2: so confusing
1: yeah but that I mean that's why it's important right that's why it's important so this game does mean something it's not a dead dead rubber they need to win it to hold the number one so say
2: say the Black Caps for arguments they go into the World Cup as number one Mm -hmm. does that mean that they will have like that advantage of being the number one ranked side at the World Cup so they might get the favourable draw
1: Yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, generally the way it works is, uh, you know, one, three, five, and seven will be in one group, and two, four, six, and eight will be in the other, or whatever. So, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll have to see, plus a couple of qualifiers. But, yeah, it can't hurt to be number one in the world, right? No, it'd be be nice to have a New Zealand men's team at number one. Exactly. It'd be great, wouldn't it? It'd be fantastic. (laughs) It is 11 away from 9 o'clock here on SENZ. Let us know what you think. Can the Black Caps pull it off tonight uh, starting at 9 o'clock? Will they manage to pull one back in the series against India? S-E-N-Z, this is Extra Time, and uh, we've been playing number one hits from the 80s uh, throughout the night. Good Times, Jimmy Barnes, and Excess, a cover, of course, of an Easy Beat song. I think it was about 87, I think that came out. Um, and it was done for a tribute album um, uh, for a guy called Stevie Wright, who was the lead singer of the Easy Beats. And that, of course, is an Easy Beat song. Uh, the song was written by the older brother of Angus and Malcolm Young of ACDC fame. There you go. Bit of, bit of useless trivia for you, Ben. But a bit of useless trivia. You want you
2: seem to know your rock music, Ricardo. Oh, I've,
1: I've done a little bit. Done a little bit. <laughs> uh, here's another piece of uh, interesting information or useless information for you to do with it what you will. Holkar Stadium, in indoor where the ODI is being played tonight, is one of the smallest stadiums in international cricket.
2: Is it smaller than Eden
1: Park? uh it doesn't actually say, but well, it It's
2: more in capacity or like the distance f- from the from the, the middle to the
1: ropes? It says here, this is according to the official website, uh, it, it is, uh, where's it gone? Uh, it is one of the small, it just says one of the smallest stadiums in international cricket, used for international cricket, so there you go. But I did hear that they, uh, I think Grant uh, mentioned it as well, Grant Elliott, when we talked to him earlier, uh, it has short boundaries. I like this option at the TAB there's a power play option any two of Tom Latham Daryl Mitchell and Glenn Phillips to hit a 6 350 wow yeah I reckon that's pretty good money I reckon that's pretty good Uh, the average score uh, first innings average score 308 in ODI history at this ground so it is going to be a run fest Uh, of course we are bowling first, so I don't know if that's a good thing or not, but I've invested anyway. Uh, enjoy whether you stay with us and uh, check out the Australian Open. We have live coverage for you now We you switch over to the cricket. Enjoy either way. We'll be back again tomorrow night from 7